fourth Sunday of this month, which is February the 28th. Uh, there's a schedule uh, posted in the hallway about some of the topics that we'll be covering and what date they'll be shared, and then you can also access that online. Uh, this week, or excuse me, this month, we'll be uh, looking at end times prophecy, and so that's a, a very interesting topic, and many of you are interested in that, so I encourage you guys to come. One thing I will say this ahead of time, uh, most of you have my email. If you don't, it's on the bulletin. You have access to it on the website or whatever. If you want notes prior to uh, next Wednesday's, which is the 28th, next Wednesday's session, uh, email me, and I'll be able to send those notes to you digitally, and then you can print them out or do whatever uh, you want to do. I may still have a couple of printed copies here, but it's hard for us to gauge how many to print. So if you, if you give me some notice ahead of time, I'll be happy to uh, print those out for you. So don't, don't forget that. All right, let's jump into Acts 12. Uh, open your Bibles if you have a copy of the Word this morning. We're going to look at Acts 12 again. Now, I want to first of all thank Brother John. I was able to listen to his message last week, and he did just an excellent job in just taking a, a big overview of Acts 12 and some of the big um, topics and themes that we can draw from in Acts 12 and just talking about the sovereignty of God over persecution and the sovereignty of God in, in prayer. Like, what, How is it if God is going to do what he's going to do, then where does prayer fit into all that? Can we change God's mind or can we affect God in those things? I, one of the things Brother John said I, I really loved, he said, prayer is paving the highway for God to work. And I, I like that picture is that, yeah, he does definitely sovereignly use our prayers uh, in order to accomplish his good, perfect, and pleasing will. And the other thing I would say about prayer, because we're not going to spend a lot of time about that this morning, is that many times I think we enter into uh, the understanding of prayer that we need to change God's heart or change God's mind or kind of petition God on behalf of others, which is part of it. But I, my experience in prayer is that prayer ends up changing me more than it ends up changing God necessarily. Does that make sense? So the more that we got, God calls us to to spend time with him, to, to draw near to him in prayer because he knows that when we do that, he begins to work. He begins to change our hearts to line ourselves up with his will and his purposes. And that's one of the most beautiful um, works of prayer that I think we all could benefit from. So uh, also Darren Brady, I, I know he was able to lead worship for us last week and I'm very grateful for Darren. I wanted to make sure I publicly uh, said that as well. So uh, we, we enjoyed our week off, and, uh, but we're glad to be back. And I'm excited about the message that God has for you this morning. So I'm not going to go verse by verse. Obviously, I, I kind of want to do a little bit of what Brother John did last week, building on some of the things that he touched on, but I, I'm going to take it a little bit of a different direction this morning. And the title of my message was, God Will Have the Last Laugh. And the reason that I titled the message this morning, God Will Have the Last Laugh, is because I don't know about you, the Lord has a sense of humor. Whenever you're reading the scriptures... Uh, you, you pick up on things in, in the Bible, and, and it just makes me laugh. And this whole chapter, I know this chapter is kind of heavy and deep. It's talking about, you know, James is martyred for the faith, and Peter is arrested, and, you know, Herod, he dies. And we're going to talk about that here in just a minute. And there's a lot of heavy stuff going on, but at the same time, I'm, I'm kind of reading through this passage, and it just made me laugh in so many different um, in, in, in aspects of it. And it made me think about David... King David, he wrote this in Psalm 37. I'm just going to share a couple of verses with you because David says this in the Psalms. He said, the wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. And that's exactly what this whole chapter really 
made me think of is that, you know, the wicked thinking of Herod and even a, a great uh, consolidation of the Jewish people who are still antagonistic toward the Christian faith and, and they're, they're gnashing their teeth, they're plotting against the believers and all the while God is just sovereignly in control of all of it and he is just laugh, laughing at, at their efforts and, and at their opposition and that's really what we see here in the book of Acts. And so I'm going to do my best to just kind of walk you through some of the things that I found a little bit humorous here in the book of Acts. Um, so, you know, James is, is murdered. Uh, Herod is trying to gain some political attention and some favor with the Jewish people. And so he finally arrests James, who is the brother of John, who are the sons of Zebedee. So these, uh, th- that's who this James is. It's not James, the brother of Jesus. And so James is, is martyred. And man, the Jewish people love that, and, and, they, and they give Herod such a, a great response to that. He says, oh, well, if I can get more popularity through that, then let me go ahead and arrest Peter too. And, uh, you know, he puts Peter in prison, and he puts six, at least 16 guards, soldiers around him. You know what I mean? And then it seems to be a little bit of some overkill, and he, he, chains, he has two chains on Peter, and he's chained to the guards, and he's got them sleeping in the prison. I mean, you can kind of see Herod. He's like, there, there's no way that this guy is going to get out of this. And, and all the while, what's God doing? He's just laughing, you know? And so you see the angel, you know, this miraculous event where Peter's just sound asleep, and I think he was just at peace. I don't know. I think Peter's just at peace. I'm not worried anymore, you know? If I die, I die to the Lord. If I live, I, I'm going to keep serving the Lord. And and it's like this light shines into the prison, and obviously the soldiers, the, the guards are not aware of what's going on. And so Peter's sound asleep, and it's kind of, kind of like this angel shows up, and he has to, like, slap Peter on the head. It's like, get up, man. It's time to go. And Peter's just disoriented. He's waking up. He's trying to figure out what's happening. Because remember, Peter had, has seen visions from the Lord before. If you think about Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, and he's in this deep trance, and he's seen a vision of this blanket, the sheet coming down with all the unclean animals and things like that. And so Peter's trying to figure out, okay, is this real or is this not real? And the angel's like, man, get dressed. Put your sandals on. Get your cloak on. We're leaving. And so they just leave. They walk right past all the guards. I guess apparently they didn't see them. I don't know how it all happened, but obviously they did it unannounced and unnoticed. And so they're wandering through the city now. They're getting outside the gates. And they just, I don't know. This is just the way I think. I'm thinking about like Star Wars. It's like Obi-Wan Kenobi with his cloak on and they're walking up to the gate and it just does a Jedi mind trick and the gate was, does what? Just opens on by itself. And they just walk on right through the gate and now finally Peter's still trying to figure out what's going on. And as soon as they get to a point of, a point of safety... The angel disappears, and Peter's just standing there, and you can imagine what he's going through. He's like, man, this was real. God really did just get me out of prison. So he's just hanging out there on the street all by himself, doesn't know what to do. So he's going to go, well, maybe I can go to John Mark's house, or it was actually his mother's house, Mary. He knew there were probably believers gathered there. Matter of fact, what were they doing the whole time while he was in prison? They're praying for him, right? And probably from their perspective, not, not expecting to see an immediate answer to their prayer. Here comes Peter. He wanders his way to John Mark's house. He's knocking on the gate. Rhoda, their servant, comes to the gate. Who is it? It's Peter. Oh, my goodness. And she recognizes his voice. She runs into there. Hey, guys, guess who? Peter's at the gate. What do they tell her? Girl, you'd have lost your mind. Right? You're crazy. You've lost your mind. We don't know. You don't know what you're talking about. Peter's still standing. Can you just picture this? Peter's still out there knocking on the gate. He's like, come on. This is Peter. She comes back a second time. It's Peter. She goes back into the house. Hey, guys, I'm telling you, Peter's there. Oh, no, it must just be his angel. 
Whatever that means, maybe it was his guardian angel or, or something that they, you know, they were trying to prescribe to this appearance of Peter or something like that. And finally, they get, the, they get the point after, I think, the second or third time, Rhoda goes back into the house. They finally say, wait a minute, maybe she's telling us the truth. They open the gate, and then here comes Peter, and the whole house just erupts. And do y'all pick up on what Peter does? He's like, be quiet. He's having to tell them to, to calm down. Be quiet. Why? Because he just escaped from prison. He doesn't want to draw any more attention to himself. So they're out there celebrating, hooping, and hollering. He's like, y'all need to keep it down. I don't want to have to go back to jail. And so you got this whole dynamic going. I just find this hilarious. Then you get to the point where Herod uh, kills the two, at least two of the soldiers that were guarding Peter. Poor guys, right? They didn't do anything wrong. So he just simply says, well, you know, somebody's got to pay for this. I, you know, I, I can't explain it. And so they have to die, which was part of the custom of that day. And, and so he kills the two soldiers. And then Herod says, you know, I got to get out of here. He goes up to Caesarea Philippi, where you had that whole dynamic where he's kind of at odds with the people of that region. And so here's Herod, dresses up in his royal robes, and he delivers this wonderful speech. And what are the people saying? You speak like God, not even like that of a man. And man, can't you just see the pride welling up in Herod? Not, not knowing at the same time God was eating his guts up with worms. He became, not only was his insides being eaten up with worms, he was about to become worm food because God struck him down at that moment, right? Dead. As he's basically, what he was doing, he's blaspheming the Holy Spirit because he was taking credit for speaking on behalf of God, when in actuality, who was he speaking on behalf of? The devil. He was, he was filled with evil. He was speaking on behalf of the devil. He was receiving glory that wasn't due him. He was claiming to be speaking on behalf of God. The people attributed to him this divinity that, that they were trying to obviously flatter him with their words. And without him, with him receiving that glory, Herod falls down dead, just like that. And the very next verse, which is so fascinating to me, it says it here in Acts chapter 12. It says in verse 24, after Herod, who was supposed to be speaking like a God, look at what it says in verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied. And so you see just all of this irony and all of this humor. And I think from a big picture perspective this morning, it would be good for us just to step back and remember that God is, he is indeed sovereign and listen, God will, will get the last laugh. He will get the last laugh. And so when I started thinking about this, there were two purposes, I believe, two primary purposes that we as believers should be mindful of, that we as believers should understand. And then there's also a couple of essential truths that we're going to look at at the end of this message um, that will hopefully help us grapple and grasp and, and, and have peace in our hearts about how God is working all of these things out according to our good and for his glory. So that's kind of where we're going to do. We're going to spend time looking at these two purposes and then these two truths that we need to remember. And then hopefully it'll tie this whole chapter together. And it really ties the whole book of Acts together, in my opinion. So let's look at this together. We're, the first thing I want to share this morning is that the first purpose in the life of a believer is to be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about discipleship, when you think about bringing people into the kingdom, when you think about people who are trusting Jesus to become a Christian, you think about some of the things, what's the most important thing 
that you can tell a new believer and really, you know, I've heard, unfortunately, I've heard this said, I've, I've seen this and heard this before, is that sometimes we share the false message that when you come to put your faith in Jesus Christ, everything from that point forward is going to be great. Or maybe all of your problems for that, for that time are going to go away. And that's not the message of the gospel. The message is, okay, now that you've entered into the kingdom and you've become a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God is going to take you where you are, and he's going to spend the rest of your life taking you from who you were to making you into who he wants you to be, which is to be like Jesus. And we're going to talk here just a minute about what that looks like and how we get there. Now, if you know anything about the mission statement of Christ church, if you look at our website or if you've seen this, when you go to Arlington, they have a big banner up there in Arlington, and, and it has our mission statement up. Does anybody know what it is? To know Christ, to make him known. And it's very simple but very profound. And really, when you want to look at our essential purposes as a believer, you can really put them into those two general primary categories. It's the first is that God is taking us where we are as believers and he's, and he's taking us through this process. We, we call it sanctification, being made into the image and the likeness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is one of his purposes, one of his primary purposes is to know Christ. And that's what it really means to know Christ is that we become, because when you know him, you, you become to love him more. And when you come to love him more, you become more and more like him. And it's just this process of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where you're being made and conformed into his image. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can be conformed and grow closer to Christ. I'm going to give you a couple. We can be conformed and, and uh, grow closer to Christ through just knowledge of his word, being obedient to the word of God. There's a lot of spiritual disciplines that we should be practicing. Part of what you're doing today is part of your spiritual discipline about gathering with God's people, worshiping the Lord, studying in, in, in uh, Sunday school, all those kind of things. Things like serving the Lord, prayer, all of those things are very, very important. And God uses all of those things to conform us, to make us more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I believe, and the longer that I live, this is what I believe. I believe that the most effective means of sanctification, okay, so the primary means, the most effective way that God is going to get us to conform, to be more like Jesus in his likeness and his nature is through suffering. Think about that for just a second. It's through suffering where we grow and mature and learn to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. The school of suffering is how we graduate from the elementary principles of the faith, and it's, how, it's where we begin to earn our PhD in Christ-likeness. Think about that for just a second. The school of suffering is where we earn our master's degree, if you would, in Christ-likeness. Suffering is the final stage of spiritual maturity. It's the ultimate test of faith, and the early church was earning its degree in suffering as Jesus promised that they would, right? I mean, this doesn't take the early church by surprise because Jesus warned them many times, hey, they're going to deliver you into the synagogues that if you, uh, if you uh, are of the world, he said you're not to be of the world, you're in the world, but if the world hated me, it's going to hate you too, and you're going to be persecuted for my name's sake. And Jesus was clear to the disciples about what they were going to face if they were serious about following him. And so the church is seeing this lived out now. And the, really the whole first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, you can see how persecution and suffering play a part in God's plan for the church. And he was basically taking them, taking them through the trials and the test of the fires 
of suffering and persecution in order to conform them to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So it's through these fires, it's through the sorrows of suffering, it's when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death is where we deeply and truly get to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we think about even his name, many of his names. Jesus was called the man of sorrows, wasn't he? He was called the suffering servant. We see that in Isaiah 53. He was our sacrificial savior. So let's think for just a second. Think about all the things the church, the early church, and we can really apply this to our life today as well, but let's think about briefly all the things the early church would have missed had they not had to endure the sufferings that they endured. Let me, let me share these with you. The early church would have missed the opportunities to share the gospel between, before kings and rulers in public, out in public. The early church would have missed opportunities to see God answer specific prayers because when you're going through times and, and seasons of suffering, it, it, it forces you to go to the Lord in what? In prayer. And then it allows you the opportunity to see God work and move and meet the needs of specific prayers that you had. And the church sees this happening over and over and over again. This is one example right here is they're praying for Peter and God delivers him out of prison. The early church would have missed opportunities to see God deliver them from evil. They would have missed opportunities to overcome evil with good and hatred with love. Again, when you're being persecuted and you're suffering and you're under attack and you're facing various trials, it is putting the gospel to the test. When Jesus tells us things like overcome hatred with love, overcome evil with what? With good. How do we even have opportunities to do that unless we face evil and we face these sufferings and these persecutions in our life? It is an opportunity for us to put the gospel in action. They would have missed opportunities to experience the supernatural power of God. Think about these angels that are coming on the scene, the workings of miracles and all the things that God was doing in the early church. They would have never been able to see those things happen had they not been through these, these uh, sufferings and these trials. They, missed, they would have missed opportunities to rely completely on the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit because when we're going through times of suffering and facing persecution, we come to realize that we have nothing else to rely on and no one else to rely on but the Holy Spirit of God. They would have missed the unity that it brought the church. They would have missed opportunities to bear one another's burdens in the midst of struggle they would have missed opportunities to exercise their faith in the promises of God so that he could prove himself faithful over and over and over again. Think about that. When you're going through a difficult time, it puts your faith to the test, doesn't it? And you have an opportunity at that moment to, am I going to trust God? Am I going to believe his promises? Or am I going to waver in my faith? It's another opportunity for us to grow and mature in our faith. And ultimately, they would have missed the opportunity to experience and know Jesus on an entirely deeper and different level. Now, when it comes to suffering, there's all kinds of different types of suffering. There's different types of pain. There are different types of trials. We understand that sometimes we bring things upon ourselves through the consequences of our poor choices and actions. Sometimes other people, because of their sin or their wickedness or their evil or whatever it may be, they bring suffering into our life. Sometimes it's just the result of us living in a fallen world where we experience things like accidents and sickness and disease and disasters and, and things like that. And then sometimes it's just a, you're marked 
as a follower of Jesus Christ by the enemy. And the enemy is sending out his attack and his opposition in the spiritual realm. The spiritual forces of darkness are coming against us. And sometimes we endure suffering through that. So no matter what it is, I'm not trying to get into all the different ways and reasons why we suffer. But ultimately, God is using all of these things for an opportunity to make us more like who? More like Jesus, who suffered more than anyone. Doesn't it make sense? If, if, if it is the goal of God for us to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's the goal of God for us to be conformed to his image, then if we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus who suffered more than anyone ever suffered, then we too are going to share in his suffering. But here's the beautiful thing. God never wastes our suffering. That's what I love about God is that he never wastes an opportunity for us, even when we go through the most difficult, most painful, the most heartbreaking things in this life. God is right there, and he's taking all of that pain and all of that sorrow and all of that tragedy, and he's making it work all together for our good and for his glory because he never allows an opportunity to be wasted. That's the kind of a God that we serve. So just in case you don't believe me for any reason, I want to share some verses with you this morning. I got several. I just want to, I'm going to go through them because I think they, they kind of drive home my point. Okay, so stick with me. James chapter 1. Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness, when it has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So there it is. The suffering, the trial produces spiritual maturity. 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Romans 5, 3. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And then two more. Philippians 3, 10 and 11. It, Paul says that I may know him. How do we know him? And the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming conformed to him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul said. How are we going to know Jesus? We share in his sufferings and we're being conformed to him even in his death. And then Romans 8, 28 and 29. For we know that for those who love God and are called to his purposes, God causes all things to work together for the good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, one reason I wanted to bring this up was this. Here in the North American church, there's a false gospel that's being preached. It's called health, wealth, and prosperity. It's the feel-good gospel. It's the gospel that says that if you want it, you can have it. If you name it, you can claim it. If you want to be healthy, if you're not healthy, it's just the fact that you don't have enough what? You don't have enough faith. If you don't have enough money, it's just because you don't have enough what? If you have enough faith, all, if you, all it takes is faith, the seed of faith. If you have enough faith, all you got to do is believe in it and it'll come true. And, and so there's this, this idea in the North American church, unfortunately, that we call the, the prosperity gospel 
that is basically saying that comfort, luxury, luxury, uh, luxury, the pursuit of pleasure, the absence of pain, all of those things are the desire and the true purpose for the believer. And if anybody is not experiencing that, that, that good, your best life right now, then it comes down to the fact that you just don't have enough what? That's the prosperity gospel. And if I'm wrong, please tell me. We can talk about it later. That's what I hear. Now think about that for just a second. How does that translate? Let's, let's, go, let's think about our brothers and sisters right now in Syria. Y'all know what's happening in Syria right now? All Christians in Syria have pretty much been eliminated, either killed or driven out of their land. What's happening to the church in China right now under heavy amounts of persecution under the communist government? What about all the Christians that we know about in parts of Africa and the Middle East and in North Korea and places where the gospel is illegal for them and they are suffering imprisonment and their villages and homes are being destroyed and many of them are being uh, stripped away from their family and put into prison and many of them are losing their very own lives. And so according to the prosperity gospel of America, all those believers in all these other persecuted areas of the world just don't have enough what? That's what it says. And that is a lie from hell. It is. It's just a lie. And here we are sitting in the comfort of the United States of America, enjoying all the freedom that we have here in the United States of America. And that kind of a message is being pumped from pulpits and on television all over this nation. And it is a false gospel. It has nothing to do with what we just read here in the scriptures, does it? Nothing. The true gospel of Jesus Christ, as far as I understand, Jesus says, no, you forsake your life. If you want to find your life, you lose it. You deny yourself and pick up your cross, which is an instrument of death. You die to yourself, and you follow me no matter what it's going to cost you because here's the message of the gospel. Jesus is trying to remind us that wealth and health and prosperity are not your greatest pursuit. I am. Are y'all hearing me? Jesus says, I'm your greatest treasure. What else do you need more than me? Am I not enough? Am I, am I not sufficient that whether you're going through good times or bad times, whether you're going through persecution or suffering or whatever it may be, am I not enough? That's the true message of the gospel. Jesus says you may go through all kinds of struggles and sufferings and persecutions for my name's sake, but I'm enough. Now I want to ask you this morning that simple question. Is Jesus enough for you? Is he, is, is he enough? Is he sufficient? Because he knew that we may suffer pain and we may suffer loss, but he knew that it is in those times and those seasons of suffering where we will get to know him more. We'll get to experience him on a deeper level. And when we realize that Jesus is all we really have, we realize that Jesus is all we really need. That's the gospel. The second thing that I would say about this is that if we were to know Christ and God uses the sufferings and the struggles in our life to allow us to come to know him more and love him more and, and uh, have that deeper relationship with him, then the second part of your life is simply this. It's to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God, which just means we are here to know Christ and we're here to what? Make him known. And that's the testimony of the early church and that's got to be the testimony of the church today. Now, James and John, uh, Jesus told them they were going to suffer. They said, you know, you think you can drink the cup that I drink? He says, you're going to drink the cup that I drink. 
James just suffered. He, he was put to death for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus warned them about that. You see, it's been once said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That was the testimony of the early church. That even in the Roman Empire, when the church was growing and the Roman government became hostile towards the, the Christians and they began to put Christians to death, every time they would put Christians to death and spill more of the martyrs' blood on the ground, guess what happened to the church? It would grow more and more, and it didn't make any sense. they say, we're trying to kill these people, and every time we kill them, they're becoming more fruitful. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that because one of the determining factors of growth and expansion of the early church was the unwavering faith that the disciples showed in the face of persecution and death. It was a living testimony to the people around them that they were willing to die for what they believed. They were willing to die for what they knew to be the truth. Now, Jesus, when he said, in the Great Commission, when he said in Acts 1-8, you will be my witnesses, he says, you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And so the command is very clear. Here's the question. What kind of witness will you be? So we're all called to be his witnesses, correct? If you're a follower of Jesus today, you're called to be his what? You're called to be his witness. That's clear, right? But what's not clear is what kind of witness will we be? You see, everyone here has, if you're a follower of Jesus, everyone here has a testimony. You have a testimony. You should be able to communicate to anybody at any time, at any place, how you came to know Jesus Christ, how you entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and how this is who you were before, this is how you came to know Jesus, and how your life's been forever what? Forever changed because of it. Everybody in here, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a testimony. That's not a question. It's just a matter of what will your testimony be? That's the question. In any given situation, we should ask God this question. How would you have me testify to your goodness and give you glory in any situation or circumstances? Because that's the responsibility of believers to make Jesus known. I want to say this. I have this underlined, highlighted, double underlined, bold face. It's right here. Every day that we fail to make Jesus known, hear me now. Every day that we fail to make Jesus known is a wasted day. We wasted, we've waste, I've wasted many days in my life. Now, that doesn't always mean that that means you're out on the street corner shouting from a microphone or shouting from a megaphone the gospel, sometimes that just means how you're making Jesus known right in your own home, right? I get that. But that also means how are you making Jesus known to your family and to your friends, students? How are you making Jesus known to your classmates? How are you making Jesus known to your coworkers and to your neighbors? Because every day that we don't make Jesus known is a wasted day. So let me ask you this question. If we're not making Jesus known, then why are we here? You know, Brother John mentioned last week, well, why did James die but Peter survived? I don't know the answer to that. God knows the answer. All I can say is James must have been, his, his witness must have been complete. He must have reached a point where God said, okay, I've used you as my witness, and your days are numbered, and therefore you've done your job, you've accomplished your purpose, and so God allowed James to go ahead and go be with the Lord, to go be with him. So as long as you have breath and as long as you're still alive, my challenge to you is, what are you still here for? 
And of course, that's a rhetorical question. Why would we ever be ashamed of Jesus? Y'all think about that. Why would we ever be ashamed of Jesus? But we are, aren't we? Let's be honest. Aren't we ashamed of Jesus sometimes? I know we are. I know I have been on many numerous occasions. And I had to begin to ask myself looking at this passage, why? Why would I be ashamed of Jesus? Was he ashamed of me when he went there? Was he ashamed of me when he was willing to lay his life down on the cross, give his very life for me who didn't deserve it? And yet here we are after everything he's done and who he is in our life and sometimes we are still embarrassed and ashamed of Jesus. So those two things are very critical and essential in our life. That we are here to know Christ and we're here to make him known. Okay? Now, how is it that God still gets the last laugh? These next two truths are going to help us be reminded of that. The next truth I want to share with you this morning is this. Like Herod, we have to remember this now. Herod, who was an enemy of the gospel, he was an enemy of the church. Like Herod, all of God's enemies will get what they justly deserve in the end. And all God's children, listen, will get what they don't deserve in the end, which is grace. One of the best definitions of grace that you will ever hear is that is that which we get that we do not deserve. That's grace. And in the end, that's what we get. If we get eternal life in Christ Jesus, we're getting the gift, the free gift of God in Christ Jesus that we don't deserve. However, for the enemies of the cross and for those who have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are purposefully trying to stop the kingdom of God, God is laughing at them because he knows that in the end, they are going to get what they deserve. It's called justice. So we don't have to worry. Remember, what did the Lord say? Who, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. He's trying to tell us we don't seek vengeance. We, we're not the avengers, right? God is the great avenger. And so therefore we must remember that God will justly repay those who are his enemies. Paul said it this way. Listen to this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. There it is again, right? Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. There's your testimony again. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is heavy. And what it's reminding us is that God will repay. He will avenge. 
He, and those who reject him and those who oppose us, those who hate the cross, those who hate the gospel, they will have to answer to the Lord one day. Therefore, we don't have to worry about that. We don't have to bring down curses upon them. We don't have to hate them, do we? Because God says, no, we overcome evil with good. We love those who persecute us. We pray for those who hate us. That's the gospel. Because we know that no matter what, whether they respond or not or whether they turn or not, God will be just in the end, and he's going to be the one that handles the final judgment. We don't have to worry about that. So we remove our place from that place of judgment, and we are simply able to be his witnesses. And the second thing is this. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord, and our sorrows will be turned into joy when we rejoice with him forever. And ever. Paul says it this way if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die through the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now, why is it that God tells us over and over and over and over again to rejoice? to find, consider it joy. Think about this for just a second with me as we wrap up. Why is it that God is constantly telling his people to rejoice and, and count it joy when we face suffering, when we face trials? Why is that? And I begin to think about this, and the reason is this, is because when we finally, see, Paul says this, there's gonna come a day when we will be in glory. And it says that the eternal weight of glory will far outweigh any momentary afflictions that we may have to face here on this earth. Think about that for just a second. It'll come a point when we get into heaven, when the day of judgment comes and we are finally with God forever and ever in what we call the eternal kingdom of God. It says there's gonna come a day when the glory of God is so great that all these momentary struggles and sufferings and afflictions that we face on this life, it says they will just be distant memories fading away. And we will be rejoicing with him in heaven forever and ever and ever. So this is what God's saying. Stay with me. He's saying, if you're going to be rejoicing in heaven forever, knowing what I've done for you and accomplished my purpose and brought you through all of the, the struggle and all of the suffering and all of the sorrow, I brought you through all of that and we're gonna be rejoicing together with God in heaven. He says, you might as well start when? Go ahead and start right now. Because that's just as much as a reality then as it will be then as it is right now because Jesus has overcome. He's saying, go ahead and start practicing what it's going to be like in heaven. You find, you consider it joy. You rejoice in your sorrows. You rejoice in your suffering because you're set apart. You're different. You're not like the rest of the world. That's what Jesus is telling us this morning. So that we can rejoice and laugh and celebrate and glorify God when the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, as we kind of turn all of this into our time of communion and we are going to enter into a time of the Lord's Supper, your application this morning is, is pretty simple as, as most of them are, but I'll just say it as um, we wrap this up. I want you to remember this morning, you can learn to see your suffering as an opportunity to know Christ and become more like him. Some of you in this room today, you're hurting, you're suffering, you're in pain. 
physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, spiritual pain. Some of you are hurting and suffering right now. Some of you have friends and family who are hurting and suffering right now. See that as an opportunity to know Jesus even more. That's, that's part of what he's doing in your life to make you more like him because he suffered more than anyone else. And then here's the next one. Learn to take advantage of the opportunities that you have every single day to make him known. Remember, every day that we're not witnessing and we're not witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ is a day wasted. And I just hope and pray that our church, and I'm talking to myself too, I hope and pray that we wouldn't waste any more days. Let's not waste any more days. Because our days are numbered and time is short and, and tomorrow is not promised. And so every day is a prayer of your heart as you wake up in the morning to say, Lord, I don't know how, I don't know when, but you're going to make it clear to me that this very day you're going to give me a chance to make you known somehow. Somehow you're going to give me a chance. And I promise you guys he will answer that prayer and he will, make, he will give you that opportunity. And so that's going to be your simple application this morning. Now, I'm going to ask our praise team to come on up, and we're going to go ahead and get ready for the time of the Lord's Supper. And then uh, I have an elder, one of our elders, Scott Jones, is going to kind of take us through uh, your instructions and, and share with you a little bit more about the Lord's Supper. And so I want to pray for us right now, and then I'm going to turn it over to Scott, and we're going to go into our time of the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much that you, you never waste our suffering and that you use everything for our good. You, you, can, you can work all things according to your goodness, your glory, for those who love you and are called to your purpose. And so, God, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that we can, we can draw strength from knowing that you will never leave us, that you're with us always, Lord. And as we enter into this time, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do a work in our heart and our life in such a way that you would take us to the next level of intimacy with you, that we would, we would come to know you more and love you more, and Lord, that we would want to serve you more. And it's in the wonderful name of Jesus we do pray.